Welcome to another day as we go through the Word of God and uh, thank you for joining me here today. Uh, as I always say, if you haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards, Facebook, Anthony P. Richards, Instagram, AP Richards, links are in the description below. Go ahead and do that. Let's like, comment, subscribe and share uh, as much about these videos as we possibly can. Uh, today we're starting a journey through the book of 2 Thessalonians. It's the second letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And it's, it's a great book because if we kind of recap a little bit, Paul goes and sets up the church in Thessalonica. He gets chased out of town. He gets a little bit concerned a few months later, sends Timothy and Silas there to go check it out. Uh, they come back with a good report, but with some questions. And, uh, and so 1 Thessalonians is his response to those questions. And uh, we're not quite sure how it all played out for 2 Thessalonians, but he obviously got reports after the letter of 1 Thessalonians was delivered. It looks like uh, Timothy and Silas came back again to him and said, okay, great, we answered all those questions. Now there's some new questions and they, you know, th we need to answer those. So that's kind of where this came from. So I'm going to read to you from the New King James uh, Study Bible. Uh, it says this, I kind of love the way it puts it. A simple phone call could have cleared up some of the problems encountered by believers in the early church. But of course, there were no telephones in the ancient world. Paul had to be personally tracked down wherever he was and given a letter with questions. The apostle then had to dictate his response to somebody so it would be hand-delivered uh, in a letter in return. Because of the distances and slow modes of transportation, this process took weeks or even months. Think about how simple our lives are now. The intervening time span allowed false beliefs to spread or become ingrained in new churches. 2 Thessalonians is an example of just such a situation. Paul had to write this letter to correct false ideas about the second coming of Jesus that had arisen in the church after reading what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians. The, the first letter of, of 1 Thessalonians, uh, again, I'm reading for the New King James Study Bible here, teaches an imminent return of Christ. But the second letter to include an intervening period of lawlessness before Christ's return and what that means and what the day of Christ even means and the day of the Lord. A closer examination of one question reveals that the instructions of the two letters concerning the end times are complementary. They are not contradictory. First Thessalonians emphasizes the suddenness of the Lord's coming to those who are unprepared while 2 Thessalonians highlights some of the events that will occur before Jesus returns. Since Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians to correct a misunderstanding that had arisen from his first letter, the difference between the two letters is understandable. 2 Thessalonians was written from Corinth by Paul shortly after 1 Thessalonians around 50 AD 51 or 52. Uh, he wrote 2 Thessalonians soon after to correct some misunderstandings about the end times, which I mentioned. And the theme, if we look at the themes of 2 Thessalonians, since the end of Paul writing 1 Thessalonians, reports had come to Paul uh, of positive progress of what was happening in the church in Thessalonica uh, and that they'd been very faithful to the gospel. But doctrinal problems had arisen and there were false teachers who had begun to tell the believers in Thessalonica that the day of the Lord was already at hand. And those teachers were misapplying and twisting what Paul's teaching was about the day of the Lord uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And so most likely what had happened is that some of the, the people in the church in Thessalonica, Thessalonica just stopped working because they were just waiting for Jesus to come back. 
and, and who knows why they were doing that. So in 2 Thessalonians, Paul stated emphatically that he never taught that the day of the Lord had already come and that he, he had to counter this false doctrine. And so he gives them you know, a dose of truth. Uh, and says, hey, listen, there's a man of lawlessness that's, that's got to come about. There's a prevalence of sin in the end times. And he reminded them that they had been called by God and saved through Christ's work. So this is what Paul sets out to do, to wait patiently for Jesus' return. And Paul in 2 Thessalonians paints Jesus, as he always does, as the glorious hope of Christians, in other words, anybody who's accepted the free gift of salvation. And, uh, and also in 2 Thessalonians, he also talks about the certainty, just as there's a certainty of an eternity in heaven for those who choose to accept it, there is a certainty in hell for those who choose not to. So, you know, it's, it's down to everybody's choice. And Paul lines that up. Now, Paul had also understood that there were certain false teachers who had started to write letters uh, as if they were him or as if they were somebody special. And so, so Paul had to be very clear about this and also one of his signatures as he wrote, wrote some of it in his own hand so that they would be able to recognize his handwriting. So if it, they got another letter and it said from Paul, but it didn't match the handwriting of the previous letters, uh, then they would know it wasn't his. Now, he didn't write all of them, but he would usually write some part of it so that they would know what his handwriting actually looked like. Uh, very interesting that, that you know the, the levels that uh, he had to go to. So let's let's start off uh, and go through the book of Second Thessalonians. And we're going to, today we're going to look at chapter one. Paul, Silvanus, who is Silas, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Silas already familiar with the church in Thessalonica. So was Timothy. Interestingly, Timothy had a Jewish mother named Eunice. And uh, his mother and his grandmother were the ones who taught him the scriptures. Very important. If you're a gran grandparent, uh, be involved in your, your grandchild's uh, understanding of the word of God and teaching them. Uh, take that. That's just a free word. I'm just giving you that for free. I'm not going to charge you. It's just there. There you go. Uh, and his grandmother's name, uh, sorry, his mother's name was Eunice. And... Uh, and, and, and I think that Eunice and, and Paul's, uh, Timothy's grandmother, really had a big influence on who he was. Uh, Paul had founded this church in Thessalonica, and you can read about that in, in Acts chapter 17. And uh, so, so that's the establishment in verse 1. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This became a customary greeting of the Apostle Paul. Uh, and uh, it was something that uh, it was really a, a signature. Leon Morris says this uh, as he cites uh, Bicknell. The Greek makes it plain that the Father and Christ are one source. It is remarkable that even at this early date, this is only 20 years after Jesus died on a cross, even at this early date, the Son, Jesus, is placed side by side with the Father as the fount of divine grace without any need of comment. The, the, the observation that, that Leon Morris is talking about here is uh, even after 20 years, uh, it was an, the Trinity was, no, no, we understand that, that Jesus was God uh, and, and in alignment with God the Father. And that's one of the things that Paul wanted to continue to teach. Verse 3, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. 
so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Paul, For Paul, giving thanks uh, for God's great work was actually an obligation. Uh, he felt bound to do it, and it was fitting because the work that had happened in the Thessalonian Christians was because of the hand of God, because of their acceptance of what Paul had taught them. Uh, Spurgeon said this, It is your duty to praise him. You are bound by the bonds of his love, as long as you live to bless his name. It is meet and comely that you should do so. It is not only a pleasurable exercise, but it is the absolute duty of the Christian life to praise God. Because their faith grew exceedingly, Paul thanked God because the Thessalonians had exceedingly great faith, growing faith, abounding love, and patience and faith through persecutions and tribulations. And this faith and love in the middle of these uh, persecutions and tribulations made Paul actually boast about them to other churches. Uh, now, how did they get an exceedingly growing faith? Uh, Spurgeon explained this, and he, he did. I'm going to be quoting him a lot uh, because he had a lot to say on this, and, and I, I'm, I, I love it, and I can't put it any better. By that means, this is how to have a growing faith. By that means, you are to grow. This is so with faith. Do all you can, and then a little more. And when you can do that, then do a little more than you can. Always have something in hand that is greater than your present capacity. Grow up into it, and when you have grown up to it, then grow more. And this is what the church in Thessalonica was doing. Verse 5, which is manifest evidence that the righteous judgment of God or of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. God's righteous judgment was at work amongst the Thessalonians and it began in the house of God. You can read about that in 1 Peter chapter 4 and, and purifying them as followers of Jesus. And, and, and this good result, showing them worthy of the kingdom of God, was manifest evidence. That's what Paul says, that God was good in allowing them to suffer persecutions and tribulations. Now, David Guzik has an interesting thought on this. He says, we usually think that God is absent when we suffer and that our suffering calls God's righteous judgment into question. Paul took the exact opposite position and insisted that the Thessalonians' suffering was evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Where suffering is coupled with righteous endurance, God's work is done. The fires of persecution and tribulation were like the purifying fires of a refiner, burning away the dross from the gold, bringing forth a pure, precious metal. Now, the idea here of them being counted worthy is not that they were seen as worthy, but they were reckoned as worthy, in, as in the judicial sense of the word reckoned. And Paul's prayer was that the worthiness of Jesus would be accounted to the Thessalonian Christians. Verse 6, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, Many people question the righteousness of God's judgment. Like, 
Does he do it right? Is he, is he fair on my behalf? And, and then some people believe that, that God's love and God's judgment actually contradict each other. I hear people this all the time. They say things like, well, I just can't imagine. I can't imagine that the God that I serve, who supposedly, supposedly is the God of love, would, 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 uh, would, would judge somebody so harshly. I just can't imagine that. Well, that's good that you can't imagine it, because if you could imagine it, you'd be God. Uh, Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The difference between heaven and earth is the difference between your ways and, and his ways, your thoughts and his thoughts. So whenever you start a sentence about God that starts with, well, I just can't imagine. Well, that's great. Just accept what the word of God says and don't try and imagine it. What you, what you need to do is just accept what the Word of God says and say, well, if that's what God says, then it must be right. It must be righteous if God says that that's what he's going to do. God's judgment is based on the great spiritual principle that it is a righteous thing with God to repay those who do evil. God is righteous, and so since he is, all evil must be and will be repaid, and it will be judged and accounted for, and it will be judged and accounted for either at the cross of Christ where he paid the price, or if you don't accept that gift, in hell. And the judgment of God means that there is nothing unimportant in my life. Everything is under the eye of God, and I must answer for it. But understand that the weight is not on you and I to escape hell. The weight is on, uh, is, is, was on Christ on the cross, and then all we have to do is say, thank you, Jesus. So, so don't, no, nobody should be watching this going, oh, oh my goodness, I'm going to go to hell. No, listen, uh, you, you, you and I are sinners. Jesus paid the price. You and I can't. And so if you don't accept the gift of salvation where Jesus paid the price, then you will have to pay it yourself. And if you have to pay it yourself, that's bad for you. That's not going to end well. Uh, the judgment of God is what allows us to, to not try to take vengeance on those who do wrong by us. See, uh, Paul says to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Uh, God was also shown as righteous when those people who persecuted the Thessalonians were repaid with tribulation according to their evil works. Now, these people who had troubled the Thessalonian Christians probably thought they were doing God a favor when they persecuted the Christians. But the righteous God was going to repay them, not reward them. And, and we can see a statement like uh, verse 6 here, very much in the same context of when the psalmist David would write about how he happily wished ill upon his enemies. Um, it, but it, it's, it's an understanding that I need to entrust the judgment of these enemies to God instead of personally taking the initiative and doing it myself. And the tribulation upon these persecutors of God's people, it's not just like some kind of purifying fire. It's like the fire of a pure and holy judgment. Way tougher, way hotter. Verse 7. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. The Thessalonian Christians were persecuted and, and they had tribulation. But God was using it for his glory. And by the time of persecution, even though the persecution wasn't going to last, uh, God says there's a day of rest that is promised to every believer. Verse 8. 
inflaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This is what the judgment is going to be like for those who persecuted the Thessalonians. For the persecutors, those who do not know God, and remember, that means those who have not accepted Jesus Christ, free gift of salvation that you don't have to earn. You've just got to say, thank you, Jesus. I confess that you are Lord. I believe God raised you from the dead. You'll be saved. Romans 10. There it is. If you don't do that, then the day of vengeance is going to be coupled with everlasting destruction. Um, David Guzik, it isn't the fire that makes hell what it is. In the fiery furnace, the three Jewish young men were completely comfortable as long as the Lord was with them in the fire, Daniel 3. What truly characterizes hell is that there, people are from the presence of the Lord in the sense of being apart from anything good or blessed in God's presence. From the presence of the Lord sums up the Bible's understanding of hell. That's what it is. It's the absence of God's presence. Nothing must be said more about its horrors other than hell will be completely devoid of God and every aspect of his character except one, his unrelenting holy justice. Leon Morris. It is not wrong for God to take vengeance. We understand this when we understand what the word means in the ancient Greek language. The word rendered vengeance has no associations with vindictiveness. It is a compound based on the same root as the word rendered righteous. And it has the idea of a firm administration of unwavering justice. The idea is the application of full justice on the offender. Nothing more, nothing less. Everlasting destruction. We must, this is very important. We, we must not be moved from the idea that the punishment of the wicked is everlasting. And just as the blessings of heaven are eternal, the penalty of hell is also eternal. Now, when it, remember what I said, Isaiah 55, you can't say, well, I just can't imagine that God would just be that mean that he would do that. No, he's given us his word, telling us what he's going to do. He's given us his son who paid the price. He's given us a way back to him. He's given us everything we need. And he's given us forewarning of what's going to happen if we don't accept the gift. So nobody can be like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. I'm so surprised. I got caught out. No, you're not going to get caught out. You just rejected the free gift. That's all. Very, very simple. Verse 10. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. For the persecuted saints, those who believed, they are going to have God glorified in them on that day and they will see and admire Jesus more than ever. Spurgeon said this, uh, those who look upon the saints will feel a sudden wonderment of sacred delight. They will be startled with the surprising glory of the Lord's work in them. We thought he would do great things, but this, this surpasseth conception. Every saint will be a wonder to himself. I thought my bliss would be great, but not like this. All his brethren will be a wonder to the perfected believer. He will say, I thought the saints would be perfect, but I never imagined such a transfiguration of excessive glory would be put upon each of them. I could not have imagined my Lord to be so good 
and gracious. See, just like we, when we say, I can't imagine that God would do this, we can't imagine what God has prepared for us. Because our testimony among you was believed. This shows the difference between one destined for judgment and then one who is destined for glory. The difference is simple. It's a belief in the message that Paul preached, which was our testimony. And it was the simple gospel message of Jesus Christ. Paul knew what it was like to be transformed from a persecutor to somebody who was persecuted. He believed the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It totally changed his life. Verse 11. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Uh, since the, the, the Thessalonian Christians were in the middle of persecution and tribulation, they needed prayer. And Paul assures them that he would pray always for them, that God would count you worthy of this calling. See, God gives Christians a high calling. And the calling is to see him glorified in us at his coming. Paul says that the Thessalonians may be counted worthy of this calling, and he shows the different ways to fulfill this calling. David Guzik gives uh, four great points. We live worthy of his call when we fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness, living lives touched by his goodness and then displaying his goodness. We live worthy of his call when we fulfill the work of faith with power, believing on Jesus and seeing his work done all around us by faith. We live worthy of his call when the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified in us. We understand that this means more than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as a word, but also as a representation of his character. And we live worthy of his call when we are glorified in him when he alone is our source, source of glory and exaltation. And we, who we are in Jesus, is more important than who we are in anything else. Verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This great work of living worthy of his calling, can only happen according to the immeasurable grace of God. And it happens by his power, by his favor, by his acceptance uh, of, uh, or acceptance in, of work in us. Moving along uh, our will and our cooperation with God. What do we observe? from this first chapter in the, the book of 2 Thessalonians. This is what I observe. There should be an urgency, an urgency to take the gospel message to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. That, that's what we should. We should have an urgency because we don't know. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We've got some ideas and signs, and we're going to talk about that more in these coming chapters. But there should be an urgency. Why? Because it's the great separator of people understanding whether they spend an eternity with Jesus or out of his presence, and out of his presence means an eternity in hell. 
And that means that we need to not only accept the gift of salvation for our souls, but then we must flip what our walk looks like. So do we have a walk that is worthy of the Lord? Are we worthy of the calling? It's a question we must ask ourselves and we must reflect upon it. So I want to pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, or whenever you're watching this, could be morning, afternoon, evening. I don't know when you're watching it, uh, but here's what I, I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for all people watching this right now. Encourage them, Lord, right now to have a quickened spirit to do what you have called them to do, to have a walk that is worthy of your calling. Lord, have, have, have something in us rise up that, that brings a sense of urgency to share the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen and amen and amen. Be blessed.